If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. remember you here, Mr. Ward. For many years, you put gold on the farmer's table. Your words and deeds have truly been blessed. You saved us from hardship and we salute you for it. You're leaving this ice-capped country and heading back home, where you will enjoy honour and wealth, but you will not be forgotten by those who love you, our dear Mr. Ward. That was Catherine Findlay telling the remarkable story of an English fish merchant who played a key role in the history of Iceland. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Pike Ward is a little-known figure whose fascinating story has been uncovered in a new book. Born in 1856 in South Devon, he was a fish merchant who surprisingly went on to become a knight of the Grand Cross of the Icelandic Falcon, Iceland's highest honour. Pike Ward's photographs and diaries were scattered and forgotten for decades, 
until they were rediscovered in 2016. Catherine Findlay, an Icelanderphile working at the Devon County Archives, found his scrapbooks uncatalogued and ignored and recognised their importance. She became captivated by them and tracked down Pike Ward's great-grandson, who it turned out had a set of Ward's diaries in a box under his bed in Bristol. BBC History magazine's content director Dave Musgrove caught up with Catherine in Devon to discuss the story. I'm here with Catherine Finley, author of a new edited volume of The Diary of Pike Ward, who lived from 1856 to 1937. He was a Devon fish merchant who played a curious role in the independence of Iceland. So we're going to talk about his life and times. Catherine, tell us what you know about Pike Ward's early life. What was his first few years like? What do we know? Uh, we know that he was um, born in Tynmouth, uh, which is on the south coast of Devon, and that's where he grew up. His family were shipbrokers. Um, his father, George Perkins, uh, had his fingers in lots of different pies. He was um, a shipbroker. He was involved in shipping insurance. He was involved in the traditional uh, trade between Devon and Newfoundland in cod. Um, and they were a successful middle-class family. Um, they were well-known in the town. Um, his father was a member of the local board. His mother was very well-known. Um, so they were a kind of affluent middle-class family. Um, and they came from a, a religious background that was based in congregationalism. Um, so one of the dissenting churches that were very strong in the West Country. Um, so they were socially fairly progressive, fairly liberal, um, and that was the uh, milieu that he grew up in. Uh, he was very close to his mother. She was a fascinating woman, very ahead of her time. And um, when his father died, she took over the business and she ran the business for, for years and years, which uh, gave him a, a kind of unusual amount of freedom, really. He didn't have to take over the family business and stay in Tynmouth for the rest of his life. Okay, so, so far, so interesting. Um, but perhaps we wouldn't be chatting about him now if he hadn't gone on and started taking an interest in Iceland, which is uh, where you found more interest in him. Um, so why why did he go to Iceland? What happened there? Well, he... Um... I think his personality was, um, he's a very gregarious person, very outgoing and curious and interested in the world. And I would imagine that um, life in a kind of small Victorian seaside town was, was possibly not the most exciting uh, place for a young man. And the, the cod trade with Newfoundland was in decline. The cod stocks had started to collapse so that wasn't really an option to go and pursue that sort of adventure that his father had. So he looked north, he looked to Iceland, and there was really no one else trading directly uh, with Icelandic fishermen at that point. Um, there were great opportunities for British trawlers in Icelandic waters, but no one else was, was trading with Icelandic fishermen. And he saw an opportunity that no one else had seen. How he first had the idea, I don't know, nobody knows. Um, but Iceland was certainly where he kind of found his place in the world. And he, he fell in love with the place and stayed for 22 years. So uh, before we jump into that, we should, should perhaps just uh, dwell on, on how we know anything about him. So um, you found a diary that, uh, that he wrote. 
Um, did we know anything about him before that? And how did you find the, the, the sources that you've uncovered? No, I, I didn't know anything about him at all. It was purely by chance. Um, I was working at uh, the Devon Archives. I hadn't been working there for very long and someone who knew that I loved Iceland and, and was a frequent visitor mentioned that they thought they'd seen some scrapbooks, um, Icelandic scrapbooks somewhere in a store. So I went looking for them and I found them. There were eight photographic scrapbooks um, on a shelf in a, in a storeroom, but they weren't catalogued. So nobody would have known that they were there. No one had ever really looked at them. Holiday scrapbooks from that period are, um, they're lovely things, but they're not that rare. So I think perhaps someone had thought they were just holiday scrapbooks um, and they'd never been, no one had ever taken any notice of them. But I was just fortunate that I knew the country well enough to know as soon as I opened them that these weren't holiday pictures. This was someone who knew the country intimately. They were photographs from all around the country um, and, and images that I'd never, I'd never seen anything like them. Um, pictures of ordinary people at work, um, places that tourists would never go. So I knew that the collection had enormous social history value. Um, and I just became really captivated and fascinated by who was this person with this strange name who, like me, had, had fallen in love with Iceland. And so that's kind of set me off on, on trying to find out who he was. And that's when I started to realise just how important he was, how significant he was. And I, I tracked down his great-grandson, who very kindly... Uh, gave me a, a whole box of material that included letters, uh, more photographs and three handwritten diaries from 1906. So he had a complete record of, of his life in 1906. And this was all completely unknown until you came across it? Completely unknown. Um, so there, it turned out there are three significant collections. There's the photographic scrapbooks that were in Devon Archives, which no one really knew were there. There was the collection that was owned by um, Stephen Ward, Pike's great-grandson, and that was in a box under his bed in Bristol. And there was a collection of objects at the National Museum of Iceland, about 400 objects. But they had not really had a great deal of context to those objects before. So one of the biggest kind of joys of, of this project is bringing those three collections together um, and they all inform each other and, and it's just an incredibly rich collection. Okay, so a, a great detective story there. So this guy, uh, this this middling sort of merchant from uh, South Devon, decides that Iceland's the place he's going to make his fortune sometime what, in the 1890s we're talking about now. Yeah. Uh, it, so he's in his mid-30s, he's looking for a, for a new opportunity. One would imagine that going to Iceland from Devon wasn't particularly easy thing to do was it was it a well-trodden path or was it something that uh, that it, that was quite difficult um no it was still fairly adventurous in those days to go to iceland um so you had to go by steamer from leaf and go via um the faroe islands and that could be a very rough crossing um and then once you arrived at the coast of iceland you had to then go all the way around the coast to get to reykjavik so yeah it was, it was still a fairly intrepid kind of journey there were the odd sort of very adventurous tourists who would go, um, but they tended to stick to the well-known sites and be taken by guides. There were British trawlers working uh, off the Icelandic coast. So there were trawlers from Hull and Grimsby and Aberdeen. Um, as mechanised trawling had started to develop in Britain and as the cod stocks in Newfoundland declined, um, that became 
uh, quite lucrative to go and, and trawl off Icelandic waters. But British trawlers were behaving pretty badly at that point, and they were in competition with Danish trawlers. And the Icelanders weren't getting anything out of that trade, really. So what he did was quite different. The, the first time that he went, he bought some fish from some British traders, um, but he very quickly had two quite important realisations, one of which was that the Danish and um, German buyers were only buying the bigger fish. They wouldn't buy small fish. So all the small fish were going to waste. So anything smaller than 16 inches was going to waste. And the other thing he realised was that Icelandic fishermen had no cash. They could only um, barter their fish with merchants who were mainly Danish, who controlled the economy. It was a very unfair arrangement. They could only sort of barter on tick, and that kept them trapped um, in poverty. And Pike realised that if he paid cash, if he dealt with them directly and paid cash, then he would be benefiting himself, but also the Icelanders who'd never had access to cash before. Okay, so step back a, a second. You've mentioned Denmark a couple of times there. So um, can you just give us a sense of, of what Iceland was like at the turn of the 20th century or in the latter years of the 19th century? It was basically a, a Danish territory at the time. Yes, it had been ruled by Denmark for, for hundreds of years with varying degrees of, of kind of control from Denmark. Um, and during the 19th century, they had started to relinquish some of that control, but they were still very much um, in charge. But Icelanders were starting to demand more and more independence. Um, and that came in stages. So you had in um, 1845, the, the assembly was re-established, the Alt thingy. Um, then you had in 1874, a new constitution was granted, but still under the Danish crown. In 1904, home rule was introduced. So there were all these kind of stages along the route of Denmark relinquishing control. And there was a great movement in Iceland clamouring for independence. But you have to remember that this was a population of about 80,000 people with very little in the way of, of natural resources, um, a country that had, that had survived the most desperate poverty and now wanted to sort of stand on its own two feet. And without fishing, that just wouldn't have been possible without commercial fishing. And I think we're very used to thinking of Iceland as a, a fishing nation, a nation that's built on trawling, which it is. Um, but that's really only a 20th century phenomenon. Before that, commercial fishing just wasn't developed in the way that it had in other countries. And that was partly because the social uh, conventions in Iceland the social laws had, had restricted people. And if you didn't own farmland, you had to work for someone who did. So that meant that people couldn't go and set themselves up as fishermen. It was essentially outside the law. And as those restrictions had started to, to relax, that was the moment when Pike arrived at that point when suddenly people could start to move to the coast and could start fishing as a full-time occupation. But as I said, they had no access to cash. So it couldn't, the, the industry couldn't develop at that point without an injection of cash. So um, you mentioned that, that if, you, if we think of Iceland's day, we think of a, a fishing-based economy. I mean, I guess we also think of a, a tourism-based economy. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and if we think of it at all, when maybe we worry about the credit crunch and things like that. But we think of it as a, as a place of, um, of, of prosperity. 
nowadays, reasonable prosperity. But what you're saying is that the, uh, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, it was a place of a penurious place of poverty and and not much opportunity. Absolutely. And and it's one of the things that when I talk to British audiences about this story that they find most surprising, because as you say, we're, we're used to thinking of Iceland as a wealthy Nordic nation. But very recently, really, um, in the great scheme of things, most Icelanders lived in abject poverty. Um, it was the, by far the poorest country in Europe. People had next to nothing. And that was that was a result of various factors. Um, in previous centuries, there'd been climate change, there'd been disease, there'd been population collapse. The Danes had implemented trade restrictions, trade monopolies, which, which cut Iceland off from the rest of Europe. So all of these factors together had led into this sort of downward spiral that meant that people were living in conditions that were really appalling um, and very isolated as well, because villages and towns had never developed. Um, so everybody lived on um, isolated farms with this very restrictive um, social order that prevented people, um, and if they weren't landowners, from bettering themselves, really. But during the 19th century, things started to improve. So the climate improved slightly, which meant that the population increased. There was pressure from Denmark to relax some of these regressive sort of social laws. So things were slowly getting better um, and people were demanding that their Icelandic identity um, should be kind of respected. And a lot of that was inspired by the sort of folklorist movements that you saw in the rest of Europe during the 19th century. And there, was a, there was a group of students in Copenhagen, Icelandic students, who um, spent a great deal of time and effort producing magazines and pamphlets and um, praising the motherland and um, restoring a, a lot of pride in the language and the culture. And all of that fed into this desire for independence. But I think it's pretty inconceivable that independence could have been achieved without a functioning economy. And the functioning economy was, as you say, broadly or greatly helped by the actions of of this one man. I mean, how how far should we be taking this? Is is it is it going you know crazy to say that that Icelandic independence wouldn't have happened when it did without the actions of this this Devonian fisherman? I think it's it's impossible to say what would have happened if he hadn't been there. But he made an enormous difference, and I don't think it's been. We haven't explored enough the link between his money and eventual independence, but there certainly is a link there. There's a case to be made, absolutely, because he was injecting cash into communities that had never had the means to improve themselves before. So having cash meant that they could then invest. They could buy bigger boats. They could buy nets. They could buy wood and build fish stores. They could do all sorts of things that were just completely out of reach without access to money. And the fact that Pike made a success of this business also attracted other British buyers. So then you had companies like um, Copeland and Berry from Edinburgh coming in and going into competition with him and, and buying the same type of fish. So suddenly you had, a, you know, this huge new market opened up um, and that money was then, so this is, this is fishing in open boats, inshore fishing in open boats. But the people that made money from that were then able to invest in trawling and, and develop the trawling industry, which is the absolute 
bedrock of, of Iceland's achievements in the 20th century. Um, it's, you can't think of, of Iceland's transformation without trawling. Um, they're absolutely interlinked. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So Pike Ward was, was instrumental, um, if that's not putting too much emphasis on, on, on helping to bring in a, a money economy to Iceland. And he goes around the, the, the country, around the islands, talking to people, making contacts, in Icelandic, I mean, is he start? Is he did he learn the language or? or? Yes, he did absolutely, um, and th- that is quite an achievement in itself because it's not an easy language to learn, um, and that really was one of the things that set him apart um, from other foreigners. And you have to remember there was, there was quite a lot of bad feeling in um, among Icelandic fishermen towards the British certainly the trawlers and the way that they were behaving. So for an Englishman to become so well-loved and well-respected in that context was um, quite something. And he first started to deal with fishermen in the East through talking to them through friends of his who were photographers, strangely enough, um, who acted as translators. But that was only really at the beginning. And then he, he learned the language and he learned how to communicate with people directly. And he spent years, every year, he would go out um, around the country. He would travel by steamship, um, in open boats, by pack horse, and go to the most remote corners of the the country, dealing with the fishermen um, and buying from them directly. And one of the the things that makes him so important as a a documenter of, of that period is that he 
had this great gift for making friends with people. So everyone from the poorest fishermen to the highest officials in Reykjavik, he knew and he was on friendly terms with and he had all these great stories and anecdotes. And in his photographs, you can see how relaxed everybody is with him. So there's the story about his own significance as a historical figure, but then he also has this other great importance as a as a writer and a photographer, someone who was documenting that way of life that soon would would disappear as Iceland became a modern wealthy nation. Okay, so he was he was a man who made friends easily, had lots of contacts, he learnt the language, and, and and there's this lovely little cartoon that we were just looking at in the plate section of your book. Uh, where he's described as what is it the most famous man in Iceland? Is that the best known man? The best known man in Iceland. Um, so that's pretty. So, I mean, it was quite a small country, as you said. But even so, um, that's a that's quite a statement, isn't it? So obviously, his influence was was known and and respected by the Icelanders themselves. Absolutely, and actually, when he left, he was presented with a poem by a an association of fishermen in the West. And I'll just read it to you, actually, because it just it really gives a sense of how much difference he made and what they thought about him. And this has been translated from Icelandic. It's called To Mr Pike Ward. We remember you here, Mr Ward. For many years you put gold on the farmer's table. Your words and deeds have truly been blessed. You saved us from hardship and we salute you for it. You're leaving this ice-capped country and heading back home where you will enjoy honour and wealth but you will not be forgotten by those who love you, our dear Mr Ward. Bjolva wishes that your beloved country will celebrate you on your return and that you will have a good life over there. With us, your name will never be forgotten, but written in gold. And I think the, the fact that that's coming from fishermen, not kind of professional poets, it really shows you just how much they they loved him. That's not, that's not kind of overstating it, partly because of his, his personality and his warmth as a person, but but also the enormous difference that he made to their lives. And for quite a long time, I, I, there's several of these references to, to gold, to him bringing gold to the country, and I assumed that that was metaphorical, kind of poetic way of describing it. But actually, in, um, I think it was 1896, the bank in Reykjavik actually ran out of Danish banknotes, and the fishermen trusted him enough to take the cargoes that they'd promised him, and he sent them gold from England and from then on he always paid in gold until there was a bank that, that could issue Icelandic banknotes um, so he he really did put gold on the farmer's table as they say. So um, you mentioned these uh, this group of um, Icelandic scholars in Copenhagen who were agitating for independence or at least uh, at least talking about the the, um, the the Icelandic nationality was Pike Ward in any way involved in those discussions did he was he in any way advocating independence for Iceland or was he simply doing his business transactions and, and making his his business success was he in any way actively looking to to advance the cause of Icelandic independence or was that a byproduct I'd say that was a byproduct um, I think it's probably wrong to think of him as a as a kind of political figure. That wasn't what he set out to do. He, w- he was um, a merchant, he was doing business, he was making money. He was doing it in a very ethical way, in a very fair way, and he was known for that, but um, he wasn't any kind of crusader uh, for any particular cause or other. Um, I think he he admired the self-belief and the determination of those that were agitating for independence. But by this point... Pretty much everybody in Iceland was pro-independence. 
but there were different strands within that of thinking around what independence would mean um, and motivation for wanting independence. So there were socially conservative elements within that who wanted to um, keep the kind of Icelandic social order as it was. There were very much more radical elements with that that wanted a more progressive version of independence. So I think Pike was slightly out of remove from all of those arguments and he, um, he had Danish friends, he had Icelandic friends. I think he could probably see both sides of the coin. And um, he's fairly ambivalent about, about independence and I think possibly maybe had some misgivings about it as well was you know would the average poor Icelander be better off in an independent Iceland or would they be better off with the Danes I don't think his mind was entirely made up on that issue hmm. that's curious because when I was reading it and given the time scale I, my, my, my mind was was um, sent thinking about Africa at the same time as a scramble for Africa when uh, British imperialists were actively uh, looking to colonise rather than decolonise. So it's slightly curious to have this figure uh, involved, but as you say, not um, not operating in a separate way. But um, whether or not he thought about independence as, as, a, as a positive thing for Iceland, um, he was recognised for his for his uh, involvement in Iceland and his contribution to Iceland. Wasn't he? he was actually given an award. So. Tell us about that. Absolutely. He was um, awarded the Grand Cross of the Icelandic Falcon, which is the highest honour that the nation can confer on anybody apart from a head of state. And he was enormously proud of that and enormously touched by that because he really, his identity changed um, during the time that he was in Iceland and he became really Anglo-Icelandic, I suppose would, would be the description of it. So... He certainly um, challenges the idea or the stereotype, if you like, of the sort of Edwardian Englishman abroad. He very much um, became Icelandic in many ways, felt himself to be Icelandic and was hugely proud of, of this um, honour that he was given. But he didn't, he didn't die in Iceland. He came back to Devon and retired. He bought a, an Edwardian villa, a very typical kind of English Edwardian villa, um, but he called it Valhalla and he covered it with Norse carvings and he filled the inside of the house with Icelandic objects. Um, and he really pined for Iceland in his later years. So um, to receive the falcon was meant everything to him. And he lived this kind of curious double life, didn't he? For, as he said, for 22 years, he was basically going to Iceland for the summers and then coming back. Like migrating like an overwintering bird between Iceland and, and Devon. Yeah, absolutely. He would um, spend the, th- the three months of the winter, those were worst months, he would spend back in Devon and then he would go back to Iceland in the spring and return again in late October, November. And yes, as you say, he had a kind of double life. So he had a wife um, in Devon and they had two sons. They had a son called Edward Um And then in 1901, uh, she had a a second baby, but she died in childbirth, sadly. um, And the child also died 10 days later. And she was called Grace Agnes. Um, But what's interesting about the the second son was that Pike chose to call him Thororin, which is an anglicised Icelandic name. So between Edward and Thororin, you can see Pike's identity kind of changing in lots of ways, and and that's just one indication that he gave his 
his second son an Icelandic name. How did Icelandic independence finally come to pass? Um, well, this year actually is the centenary of Icelandic sovereignty. So in 1918, after the First World War, um, Denmark and Iceland became two separate countries under the Danish crown. Um, and that situation lasted until the Second World War. And as you say, the British marched into Iceland, the Germans into Denmark, um, and the Danes were in no position to uh, continue that that arrangement. So full independence, um, the complete break with Denmark came in 1944. And, um, I mean, famously, uh, Britain and Iceland clashed after that period in the in the Cod Wars mm-hmm. when there was continued disputes over fishing rights. Was Pike Ward, the Englishman, in any way remembered by the time of, of those conflicts? Was all was his reputation already beaten the dust by it? Um, I think for a long time, older fishermen would have known um, the term for uh, saltfish um, that were sent to Britain, the smaller saltfish that were prepared in the way that Pike had taught people. Um, they were known as Ward's Fisker. And so his name lived on in that. But as the British um, appetite for saltfish declined, you know, that product fell out of use. So his name sort of disappeared with it, I think. No, his his very sort of central role in the story of, of what was happening in Iceland in the early 20th century has really been forgotten. Um, I think partly because he isn't buried in Iceland, he didn't have descendants in Iceland that we know of, but also partly because it's a very pivotal point in Icelandic history. It's a very Icelandic story. And so the role of a foreigner um, perhaps doesn't doesn't fit so well with that and, and has been kind of f- forgotten. And so it's just a, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to put it back and, and restore his part in that story. And there's going to be an exhibition about him or of his photographs in the National Museum in Iceland next year? Yes. In, in 2019? September 2019, an exhibition is opening at the National Museum of Iceland um, that will show a selection of the photographs from his scrapbooks. Um, and that's been a really fascinating process, actually working with the National Museum of Iceland on that, because the photographs which they find most exciting perhaps I, I wouldn't necessarily have known that, that that they were the most significant images and that's to do with the the ways of life that he was depicting he was showing things um, that don't appear in any other photographic collection uh, any other Icelandic collection ways of life that obviously people knew, knew people knew what life was like from written accounts from the rest of it but but we haven't seen it in photographs before and so that's really exciting and we'll be launching the book in Iceland and having the exhibition, as I say, in September 2019. So do you have any thoughts on uh, what that exhibition and the publication of the edition of his diaries might do for his reputation in Iceland? Do you imagine that people will come back to his story and start to take a, a new interest in that and perhaps in the story of Icelandic independence as well? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I, I don't think, certainly in Iceland, the interest in that period has never um, never gone away but this is a new voice on that period um, it's a new angle one of the things that, that makes it valuable as an account is that um, there is there's such a great cast in the book there's so many other people that he knew who were significant figures um, that not only is it his story but it's an insight into the stories of lots of other significant people at the time as well 
Okay. And finally, do you have a, a favorite moment in the diaries? Any any particular bit that you find particularly interesting or fascinating? Um, there are so many. I think one that always um the most moving passage I think is he witnesses the storm in 1906, which is still considered Iceland's worst maritime disaster. Um, 70 sailors died and, and he witnesses that firsthand and his account of that is very, very moving. Um, so I always find that very touching. Um, there are so many wonderful descriptions of the landscape, the northern lights, um, his various adventures. And he's very, very funny as well. And again, it's, it challenges the sort of stereotype of um, diaries from this period. He's a very, very funny writer. And one incident that I always particularly enjoy is when he got into trouble with his landlady for throwing soup out of the window and his account of how cross she is with him is, um, yeah, it's hilarious. So he's, he's very likeable, very readable. That was Catherine Findlay. The Icelandic Adventures of Pike Ward, edited by Findlay, is out now, published by Amphora Press. And that is about all for today. But we will return on Monday when Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson will be talking about his new film on the First World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.